Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, editor of Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Joining me today is our Washington, D.C. Bureau Manager, Ray Lehman. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Paul Androsik from the law firm of Steptoe & Johnson in Washington, D.C. Paul is a partner in the firm's D.C. office where he practices primarily in the employee benefits field. He is head of the firm's ERISA Labor and Employment Group. He also has more than 25 years' experience in the employee benefit plan field. We're pleased to have you with us today, Paul. Thank you. Today's discussion centers on a Supreme Court ruling involving new legal liabilities for 401k plan administrators, and I'm going to turn it over to Ray Lehman today for our first question. Thanks, Tom. So, Paul, can you tell us what is the significance of this ruling? Happy to. You know, basically the case is the most significant is in the participant-directed individual account plan area. What the court held was that the participants in those types of plans have a cause of action under ERISA to recover losses to their individual accounts resulting from alleged fiduciary breaches. That cause of action exists under Section 502A2 of ERISA. And uh, before the court's ruling, there was some significant doubt as to whether participants had the ability to recover losses in their individual accounts. And that uncertainty arose primarily from a Supreme Court decision interpreting Section 502A2 back, oh, about 20 years ago, a case called Massachusetts Mutual versus Russell. So its greatest significance is eliminating the uncertainty of uh, participants to have a cause of action to recover those types of losses. So could this impact other coverage areas, such as life insurance or or pension plans that are are company-defined? Frankly, I don't see it having great significance outside the individual account plan area. The reason I say that is that the court's focus was particularly on that type of relief, and it really did little with Section 502A2 outside the scope of that context. In fact, the court's holding was quite narrow. It left the Russell case, the seminal case, if you will, intact with respect to defined benefit plans. So the same rules that applied before, the LaRue case and the defined benefit plan area still apply. And I really think that will have very little significance in the welfare plan context. And the reason I say that is that the court emphasized in LaRue that the cause of action it was recognizing was a cause of action that permitted participants to recover effectively plan losses, losses to their individual account plans. Uh, The court didn't suggest that participants had the ability to recover losses outside that plan loss context. In other words, it didn't suggest they had the ability to get punitive damages, the ability to get consequential damages, damages outside the context of their plan losses. So it was a relatively narrow ruling focusing on the plan loss uh, nexus. Paul, will this ruling lead to a lot more litigation in your opinion? It's hard to say at this point in time. I think that we'll probably see greater litigation with respect to individual account plans simply because the uncertainty there has been uh, taken away. Anytime you have effectively a new cause of action recognized with the possibility of a monetary relief, I think you're going to see greater litigation. And we all know that individual account plans, particularly self-directed 401k plans, are far more prevalent today than they've ever been. I think there's approximately 60 million Americans that participate in those types of programs, and those participant-directed accounts hold about $2.5 trillion in assets today. That's a lot of money, and that suggests that people will try to find some way to bring litigation involving those plans. At the same time, it does require this plan loss nexus, and if participants' losses are small enough, you might not see a great increase in litigation. 
So are the insurers, I guess, particularly the life insurers that act as 401k plan administrators, are they concerned about this? I think that any plan record keeper would have to have some concern about the ruling of the case, simply because of the facts of the case. Of course, in this case, the facts are relatively easy to state because the uh, decision was really ruling on a, a motion to dismiss. So the facts, as alleged in the complaint, are taken as true for that purpose. And what the participant alleged in the case was that he had given direction to his uh, plan administrator, if you will, investment direction, and those investment instructions weren't carried out. So it comes up in, in the context of plan administration, I would think that record keepers would be concerned. At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that this really isn't any kind of strict liability decision. The cause of action that was recognized, it's a cause of action, again, under Section 502A2 of ERISA, which authorizes suits against planned fiduciaries to recover planned losses. So uh, you'd have to go through several hoops if you were a plaintiff before you could recover in this type of case. You'd have to demonstrate that your defendant was a planned fiduciary, otherwise they'd have no liability for the issue in question. And you'd also have to show that there was, in fact, a breach of fiduciary duty. In many cases, I think your record keepers would take the position that they're simply carrying out ministerial activities and they aren't fiduciaries for purposes of ERISA. I'm sure there will be a lot of litigation over that as we go forward in this area. Paul, any chance for further appeals here? Uh, no, this is pretty much it, at least from the Supreme Court's perspective, in terms of this particular case and as to whether there is a cause of action. Now, there's no further appeal available as to whether this cause of action exists. At the same time, the LaRue case dealt with a motion to dismiss. All the court said was the participant had a cause of action. The case will ultimately go back to the district court and be litigated in a normal course, so there could be additional appeals. But the basic ruling that a cause of action exists is the law of the case, and that's over. Whether or not the participant will be able to prove there was a fiduciary breach, number one, and number two, that that fiduciary breach resulted in actual recoverable losses is what the litigation will be about. So, Paul, could the court have ruled more broadly in this case in a way that would have affected the insurance industry? Uh, yes, it could have. The participant in the case, in the little case, was also suggesting that they had a claim for monetary relief under Section 502A3 of ERISA. That's a much broader cause of action under ERISA. The Supreme Court held in a case called Verity a number of years ago that participants could bring a cause of action for individualized fiduciary breaches under that provision. However, that provision has been narrowly construed insofar as remedies are concerned. So far, it's been limited to narrow forms of equitable relief, and it doesn't encompass money damages. If the Supreme Court had tinkered with that provision, it could have had a much broader significance, uh, particularly for non-fiduciaries, because Section 502A3 is not limited to claims against fiduciaries as Section 502A2 is, and there is not the same uh, narrow restriction to recovery of plan losses. So that if the court had recognized the broader cause of action there, it could have opened the door to much, much broader damage claims. And in fact, the Department of Labor has been arguing for a broader interpretation without success so far in the lower courts of appeals, a broader interpretation of Section 502A3. And I guess one other thing I should note is that with respect to the decision, in some respect it does have a silver lining, and that is the court did recognize the cause of action was available to plan participants. If the court had found that there was no relief to plan participants in this context, it 
it's likely that Congress would have stepped in to try to have some legislative fix, and who knows what type of remedies they might have come up with if they started tinkering with the scheme that has worked so well for all these years. Okay, Paul, thanks very much, and thanks for joining us today. We greatly appreciate it. Okay, very good. That was Paul Andrasik from the Steptoe & Johnson Law Firm in Washington, D.C. Special thanks today to Ray Lehman from our Washington, D.C. Bureau Office and to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ams.com. I'm John Zuba, joined by Ray Lehman, and now this message. BEST's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in BEST's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBEST listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about BEST's directory of recommended insurance attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 